0: wanted to have your own podcast, but you just didn't know where to start. I know that it used to be me until I uh, was told about Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is one of the best podcasting platforms out there because it's free. They help you with distribution, getting onto all the various podcasting platforms. They have tools for editing and for creating all the podcasts, uh, and they even have monetization tools. It's a really, really great app and website. I highly recommend it. If you want to get your own podcast going, go and download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. I can't recommend them highly enough. So, download that free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm so you can get started making your own podcast.
1: So, there is a a crisis of goodness, but it's not all, you know, uh, dire straits. It's also a good crisis for people who follow Jesus because. Jesus' fruitful moral vision was that we would embody his virtues and uh, the values of the kingdom of God in order to bring good into Christ.
0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in and so what i seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom integrity and courage one of the chaotic parts of life today is people's questioning over all of the moral crises that we see happening around our world uh crises in politics crises in society culture uh and so on People today are questioning, what is good? Is there good out there? How do we find the good? How do we find justice? And so on. And they are also asking, is Christianity good? And can it help? Well, my guest today has written an excellent book to answer these questions, confront these issues called Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. His name is Jonathan K. Dodson, and we got to have a really, really great conversation related to these issues around the crises that we face and how we can face them uh, uniquely and effectively as uh, Christians, as citizens in the kingdom of God. Jonathan K. Dodson is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, and the founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship. He is the author of several books, including The Unbelievable Gospel, Raised, and Here in Spirit. Visit his website and read his blog at jonathandodson.org. Follow him on Twitter at Jonathan underscore Dodson. I had a really great conversation with Jonathan on this episode. I had, uh, I enjoyed getting to talk to him. Jonathan is a great guy, interesting thinker, uh, very eloquent speaker. Uh, and, and I just really like the way that he uh, framed his ideas in this book. And so I can't wait to share with you guys. Before we do, I want to encourage you, if you have not yet already, to subscribe to this show. Subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you may be watching or listening so that you can be, uh, notified of any future episodes and content that we put out all of these biblical resources so that you can live well in our world today. If you would, if you get a good out of this show and this episode, let me encourage you to like this episode on YouTube or to leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Whenever you do that, it really helps us out to, uh, to help other people to find this show and let them also, um be benefited from the resources that we are putting out. Well without any further delay, I'm excited to bring to you this conversation that I got to have with Jonathan Dodson. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Aaron, thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Me too. I've been looking forward to it. It's uh good to meet you. Whenever as soon as you had sent me your your email uh your your bio over email and I got to read it, I was immediately excited to get to talk to you. Fellow church planner Uh, You you mentioned, I love that you mentioned your bio, your favorite band to listen to, uh, (laughs) The War on Drugs. And I love The War on Drugs as well. (laughs) So I was excited to find someone else because I I find not too many people, uh, you know, know about them, but I love them. So I was like, oh, sweet. Well, this is going to be fun. Well, that's great. Yeah. Soulmates. (laughs) Uh, I already read your bio, but just tell us a little bit more about your background uh, and what you do, uh, where you're at in life, how God brought you there.
1: Yeah, I'm married to Robbie for 21 years, and we have three kids: uh, Owen, 16; Ellie, 14; and Rosamond, our little surprise, is 10. And uh, they're lovely kids. Uh, you know, they're <clears throat> actually you know becoming young young man, and young woman, which is an exciting time for us. My son and I are going to hike the Appalachian Trail next weekend for three days uh, wow. with another dad and a couple of his kids, and so we're excited to do that. Um, he's, uh, he's a thoughtful guy, um, sharp guy, and, uh, just a blessing. Uh, Ellie's our, uh, athlete. So she's a cheerleader. She does soccer. Um, she is a thoughtful, a deep old soul for her age. And then Rosamond is like a, she's like an imagination in the flesh. She just creates worlds out of thin air. She's bouncing around. She's like, you know, she's constantly narrating what's happening all around her.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so she, she's a delight. I'm, I'm really excited to see what she turns out to be as she grows. So that's the, our family. Um, <clears throat> we've been in Austin 15 years. Uh, we moved here to plant this church that I pastor. It's called City Life Church. We're downtown. Our focus has always been kind of the urban core, where 76% of the people in Austin don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. So it's definitely missionary territory. And that was important to me because I was involved in overseas missions. I was in Southeast Asia, Burma, Laos, Thailand, doing uh, anthropological research to help church planters taking teams over. Uh, my heart was to kind of die among an unreached people group and uh, <clears throat> plant churches and spread the gospel. And then the Lord turned me around and asked me to consider North America as a mission field. So. We, we looked around for some of the harder places and, and more needy places, and Austin was definitely up there. And um, I'm so glad that he brought us here. It's been um, challenging, uh, rewarding, um, uh, maturing. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a very powerful gift to me and my family and to see the Lord grow his church out of nothing. Um, you know, just kind of a front row seat to the redemptive power of the gospel. And, um, so I'm very grateful to, to have been part of planning this church. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's a bit about kind of ministry and, uh, and my family.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, we can definitely see your missionary heart in, uh, the book that we're talking about today, which is, uh, this book that came out, uh, in March of last year called Our Good Crisis. Uh, one, which I would definitely say is a book that is uh, simultaneously challenging to uh, someone who's maybe exploring Christianity, uh, but then also an, an encouragement and you know something to equip the person who's already a committed believer. Um, so th- once again, the book is called Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. Explain just what is the meaning of that title uh, and what was the inspiration behind writing this book?
1: Uh, The title is a double entendre. So on the one hand, uh, there is a crisis of good. Um, That's not a surprise to anyone that's watching or listening this. Like there is a crisis of goodness, crisis of virtue. Um, We're confused about what goodness is. We're fighting about what goodness is. And we're struggling to embody goodness in our relationships and in our society. So there is a a crisis of goodness, but it's not all you know uh, dire straits. It's also a good crisis for people who follow Jesus because Jesus fruitful moral vision was that we would embody his virtues and uh, the values of the kingdom of God in order to bring good into crisis. So that's the second meaning. So yes, there's a crisis of goodness, but as of all the people on the planet, we have an opportunity to actually retrieve ancient eternal goodness and put it on display in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our cities and towns. So as kind of a double meaning there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just came out of, frankly, pastoral struggle. Uh, You know, this came out in 2020, right when the pandemic started. But prior to that, there had been plenty of crises, financial crises, sex scandal, political crisis with our president, you know, so there was plenty of crisis. And as I saw these various crises influencing people in our congregation, I noticed that it was almost like, um, uh, I hesitate to use the metaphor red herring, but it, you know, kind of following the crises to the right and to the left and losing sight of the centrality of Christ. Not just for spiritual formation, but for for engagement, important things on the right and the left. And so the, the the book was written out of a desire. How do I help people who are dealing with you know major shifts in sexuality, gender, our understanding and history of race and racism? Um, how how do I shepherd my own congregation through these kind of tension-filled times with the sanity of of Christ and and the wisdom of Christ, and with the grace of the gospel, so you know I kind of went back to school because I felt like the new apologetic issues are not ones I was trained on in seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so I was kind of trained to answer questions uh, that basically answered the big question: Is Christianity true? So you know, is the Bible reliable? Um, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Um, you know, are, are the gospels authentic? Those kinds of things, but today people aren't asking is Christianity true? That they almost don't even care about that. People are predominantly asking, is Christianity good? Given my friend's uh, same sex attraction, given you know uh, my friend's person of color who's experienced injustice, you know, is Christianity even good? So I kind of this book was kind of an exercise in enrolling in in school again to kind of study these cultural issues. Uh, you know, on the one hand with my Bible and the other, and kind of, how do we, how do we navigate these? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do I pastor our people to address them and address them with Jesus mm-hmm. vision of what it means to be truly human? So,
0: yeah. And going back to the the meaning of the title, I think that's one of the things that drew me to, uh, interest in the book. And then wanting to have you on the show is that, um, I, I, I love that, that framing of there is a, uh, if I could put it in like slightly different words, there is a good opportunity for us in the crisis, mm-hmm. trying to call Christians out of this, um, I, I, I wouldn't call it a slumber, but maybe a spell of living in this reactionary mindset, you know, mm-hmm. where they're uh, reacting to from whatever angle and to whatever issue, um, but just reacting in the same ways as the rest of the world, rather than saying that in every crisis, God has an opportunity for us to uh, step into his calling and to mm-hmm. uh, engage whatever crises or difficulties we see happening in the world with uh, the goodness of the gospel, um, you know, to uh, be agents of redemption, as I like to say in our, in our church, you know, ambassadors of, of, of Christ and the gospel and, and actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and so I love that. And, uh, and yeah, so I'm an apologetics guy as well. Uh, that's what my master's degree is in, and that's what we do a lot of okay. the show. And 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 I agree with you that uh, that because I was you know studying apologetics in seminary at the same time that I was church planning and uh, and and meeting and talking to and interacting with a lot of uh, unchurched or dechurched people, uh, I was recognizing that there was very very little overlap between the issues I was being taught to address and the actual issues that people were mm-hmm. asking about you know mm.
1: and, and that was you were and that, you were taking seminary while you were planting the church mm-hmm. okay so yeah. still not yeah. quite caught up unfortunately yeah well yeah. cool that, that you have that interest it's you know it's so relevant and um, perhaps more than ever uh, yeah. at least North America so
0: yeah awesome. and so it's so- a following along that line of thought about apologetics, what your book is doing is it's an interesting blend. So this is another thing that attracted me to the book is that it's it's an interesting blend between doing some cultural apologetics and some spiritual formation, uh, Mm -hmm. which which I love. And I I think that it's excellent that you're doing that. So explain how you're trying to do that in this book and what it even means to attempt to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's a third spiritual formation, a third cultural apologetics, and a third ethics. And um, it's a tough blend to pull off. I don't know if I I did the best job, but it it seems that all three of those things are critical. If you leave one out, um, you get an imbalanced response to crisis. Um, Yeah, how how did I come at it? I think I wanted, I was pleased to hear you say that a non-Christian could read this and be challenged as well as a Christian. Uh, benefit, because that was my hope was that it it could serve both audiences, and so that that is a reflection of how I came at the book. I I wanted to think about, you know, okay, what what you know, how where do we get moral vision? You know, uh, well, the greatest moral document in the world is probably the Sermon on the Mount. You know. Um, it's been recognized by secular people, non-Christian religions as being, you know, having moral impeccability. You know, Richard Dawkins, no friend of Christianity, said that uh, it was way ahead of its time ethically. So, uh, and of course, this is this is the son of God giving us his vision for how to live in this world. So, you know, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it's got credibility. And so I thought this is a great place to start to, to wrestle through how we deal with crisis. And, and the way I came at it was I wanted to think about, um, one, the actual Beatitudes of Christ that are the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, his vision for moral goodness and human flourishing. But I also wanted to think about what are the actual secular Beatitudes, the Beatitudes that influence the way that we live. And uh, so as I began to think about those, i began to try to dial into the um the functional beliefs of our society that actually whether if you're a christian you're 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 perhaps consciously or unconsciously living by them but if you're you you are a christian uh you're actually influenced by them inhaling them regularly so we're looking at what does it mean to be poor in spirit jesus uh in the age of a big me uh the the big me is the term coined by david brooks for the age of, you know, expressive individualism where everything is influenced by my, my feelings, my kind of emotions, my moral intuition comes out of what I think and feel, Uh, the big me looms over all of our decisions. So uh, what does it look like to be poor in spirit in the age of a big me, you know, Uh, what does it look like to be? you know, so so that's that's the idea is taking the beatitudes and thinking about them from a secular functional beatitude perspective, and and working out okay. What is there insight from the big me? Are there things that we've missed? And then how does Jesus uh, affirm and confront both affirm and confront those kind of secular beatitudes? Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is wring as much wisdom as I can out of kind of the secular age, um, while also taking seriously Jesus Beatitudes and then saying, okay, what, what's the result? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we live? So that, that's kind of how I came at it.
0: Yeah. And so by going to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, trying to use them as a, uh, as a filter through which we evaluate the ideas of the world and their Beatitudes, an implicit assumption in, in that is that the, this sermon, which is 2,000 years old now, is still relevant for today. And so if you were talking to someone who was skeptical and said, you know, okay, what we're dealing with modern problems can, even though it was great in its day, can a 2000 year old sermon really be relevant to the moral crisis or the good crisis or or I should say crisis of good they're facing today. How would you respond to them in, in that challenge of the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount to today?
1: Uh, I would ask them, what are the top two concerns of your life? You know what? What are the top two issues that you're most concerned about in the world? And they they would probably be reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, a person who is justice-minded you would probably say, "I'm concerned about, you know, um, uh, you know, racial justice, uh, uh, justice, uh, prison reform. Uh, who you know, any number of uh, injustices." Well, there's a beatitude for that. You know, blessed are the those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that word, righteousness, is a robust word coming out of the Old Testament. That is, yes, moral, but a moral righteousness. But it's also uh, just justice. Uh, the, the root word for justice is there. So, um, <clears throat> so if you're concerned about justice, Jesus Christ is actually more concerned about justice. He not only wrote about it, he, he lived a just life, more just than anyone else. In fact, if you're cynical about justice in the world and people being true, uh, this is the only person on the planet that ever lived up to his proclamations about justice entirely. He's the only person that ever lives up to all of his beliefs. Nobody else on the planet does that so if you if you're concerned about just, I commend you let's take a look at the only person that ever held up all of his claims about justice and actually wrote with profound wisdom and uh, on these topics, so that would be the way I would respond is was like you know kind of you know that's that's a dusty sermon. Well, what are your concerns I'm willing to bet they're reflected in these beatitudes
0: yeah, yeah, that's excellent that's good yeah uh it, it shows that a lot of the things that we um are, are facing in our life today though the packaging is different, the core human experience and struggles are the same yes yeah yeah I think uh, we we could also point to uh to church history and we could look at times throughout the ages and look at the kind of people and communities that were formed out of the Sermon on the Mount and the good that they did in the world yeah yeah is that is that something that you that you uh Studied or uh, or pulled out and working for this uh, or working on this book, are there any historical examples that you point to as look look at these people who lived out the beatitudes or one of the beatitudes and look at the good that they did in the world? Uh,
1: I don't. I use historical vignettes uh, not as examples of communities who embody the beatitudes, but uh, in in a, in an effort to understand other periods in which we encountered crisis. So look at the sixties and the seventies a little bit and kind of read and thought more about, you know, the experience of being overwhelmed with all the issues of both local, national and global concern that are just kind of profoundly anxiety producing. So that's where I got into history. I didn't get into history on kind of other communities, which is a great idea. Uh, that have embodied the Beatitudes and promoted this kind of, you know, of course we have that recorded in Acts. Um, there, you know, uh, example, Anabaptist communities, um, you know, Moravians, uh, different different communities that embodied the Beatitudes and were a blessing to their neighbors. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great idea.
0: Yeah. So looking at the 60s and 70s and how people responded to crisis, what were some of the insights that you found there and and that you shared in the book?
1: You know, I think I think uh, I was helped to consider the fact that the 60s were were fraught with just as much, if not more crises than we're facing today. You know, um, so, you know, the the Vietnam War, uh, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers killed in a cause that was highly questionable uh, and demonstrations over that that were uh, physical, like the race riots we experienced um, <clears throat> last year. Um, so, so, so there's there's rioting, uh, there's political um, conflict uh, in the '60s. There's questionable, uh, ethically questionable war that we're engaged in. We're we're uh, dealing with you know, kind of the war in Afghanistan and the ethics of that war. Um, <clears throat> there's political figures. I think for the first time, you know. We, we had really thought political figures were kind of uh, people that we could put our hope in. And then you have finally a massive scandal like Watergate mm-hmm. that um, exposes, you know, ulterior motives, uh, ethical problems behind the leaders that we're looking to to accomplish goodness in the world and in our own nation. So you just have a compounding effect of many crises that were destabilizing the nation then. And then of course you've got civil rights uh, and lots of protesting, lots of injustice. So it, it was helpful to look at the '60s and go, "This isn't new," <laughs> um, and people got through it. Um, and the '70s weren't much better, and people got through it. We, we can make it, but not only just make it; we can actually thrive through it. Uh, we can be a people that embody the the this fruitful moral satisfying vision of jesus christ and actually be those kind of little stars in the nighttime sky you know the people that shine like little communities of light in all the darkness that's encroaching upon us as we try to follow jesus in these times so it was just helpful to kind of dial into some of that you know Mm. and, and recognize uh the world has been through this and worse before in fact our country has been through this and worse before it's that there's, it's possible to, to make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. That's excellent. It, it, once again, the Beatitudes lead into, uh, talking about, uh, Jesus saying you are to be a, the, a, a light in the world, a city set on a hill. And yeah. that, that's what I thought about when we we're talking about being those lights in the night sky, that, that, that city set on a hill, uh, being a light in the darkness. And I mean, once again, going back to the opportunity that we have in crisis, I think in order to do that, though, to to be salt and earth, to be a light, to be a city set on a hill, you have to have somewhat of an an immunity to getting caught up. And this goes back, once again, to how we started the conversation. You have to have somewhat of an immunity to getting caught up in the reactionary nature and the cycles of anxiety, stress, Mm -hmm. anger, (laughs) outrage, whatever else uh, that happens with our crisis-filled life. And so I'm wondering, is there something uh, unique about living in the kingdom of God? that changes the way that people uh, perceive, evaluate, or just even emotionally approach crises. Being in the kingdom of God, we're in one sense in a transcendent community, right? Because you Mm -hmm. and I are separated by about an eight hours drive, Mm -hmm. uh, but but, but we're still together in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And, And the same thing with our brothers and sisters around the world and then the cloud of witnesses, so mm-hmm. in one sense, it's a transcendent community. Um, and so you would assume that being in the kingdom, a transcendent community, uh, and in an infinite kingdom, that changes the way that we experience and interact with uh very imminent and uh, time-bound crises and events, right? Mm-hmm. But we're mm-hmm. still in the world. Mm-hmm. So we're not completely untouched by them. So right. so how do you think living in the kingdom changes the way that we even approach crises, which then will enable us to be salt light, um, in a city set on a hill.
1: Yeah. There's a variety of ways to think about that. You know, if, if you take the kingdom metaphor, which this is a, a vision of the kingdom of God, um, both the first and the last beatitude, uh, the, e- each beatitude is attached with a heavenly promise. So best of the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's mirrored in the last beatitude for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven which is interesting. One is immediately and then will be persecuted. Hmm. Um, But so kingdom of heaven is a metaphor that Jesus is working with. And it is precisely because we have a citizenship, a belongingness, a uh, identity in that transcendent kingdom that we are able to respond to issues both on the right, on the left, from a place of, um, Well, you used the word immunity, you know, a a place of, I think a place of of wisdom, a place in which, you know, both, all issues matter. Mm -hmm. We can weigh the right and left and not be defined by our position on the right or the left because Mm -hmm. we are ultimately defined by our citizenship in the kingdom Mm -hmm. of God. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I don't, I don't need, even if I think you're wrong, we can talk about it, but I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be outraged. I don't have to be embittered. I don't have to leave that small group. I don't have to you know, um, just walk away from the church because what binds us together is not my view on right or left. It's our view of Christ. And if I really am beholding that citizenship and enjoying being hidden with God in Christ— not only does it free me to have to be right in all the conversations, it also it also shapes the way I behave in those conversations. Whereas if you don't have citizenship here in the kingdom of God, then you've got to find citizenship somewhere else. You've got to belong somewhere. You've got to say, uh, I'm right somewhere.
2: Mm.
1: And it, so that leads to the feuding and the outrage and the anger and the, and the, and the division is because this is where people are, are living quite literally, are living, camping out, uh, dwelling, finding citizenship in either the right or the left. And therefore, your worth is attached to that. So if someone challenges it, your, your personal worth is being challenged. And if you're, if you're not right, then you're, you're, you're worth less. Mm. But if you are right, you're worth more. Mm-hmm. And if you can convince people that you're right, then you even feel more worth. Uh, and then eventually, that rightness gets into self-righteousness. So, you know that that's you know that's that's one of the benefits of of, of these is that you have a third place to live from which to address issues and engage people. Um, and so, you know, uh, that, that that's a helpful place to do it. Jesus uses a metaphor to describe the beatitudes right after that, which you've already referred to as us being a city on a hill. Um, uh, or a lamp in a room that gives light to those in the house. Mm-hmm. And the thing about light is that the, the light is also distinct. It's, it's in the darkness, but it's not the darkness. It, it sheds light and warmth. So it, it, it helps those that are fumbling about in the darkness, but it isn't the darkness. And that's, the, that's one of the prevailing challenges right now is Christians are not remaining in the light they 're walking out into the darkness, absorbing the views of the darkness, living in speaking in dark ways, and are becoming less distinct and the only way for the darkness to be illuminated is not through your education on uh, matters of justice it 's not through your activism with abortion that 's the the light the light of the world is christ john eight thirteen I am the light of the world whoever um, follows me and does not walk, walk in darkness, right, will have the light of life. Mm-hmm. So, so again, it's this third place in which we can live. The living in the light of Christ is how we emit. It's like holding yourself up to Jesus so his light can pour through in these matters instead of holding yourself up to this view or that view, which will actually make you darker and less brilliant. hmm so both of those metaphors, I think, help us understand the very unique contributions that Jesus is giving us to live in times of crisis.:
0: yeah, absolutely and there's there's so much more that we could unpack there uh, yeah. yeah I think the, the, those are yeah, you had a lot of really, really great thoughts in there, um, a lot of quotable moments, but I, I love what you said about being citizens in this kingdom, kingdom rather than being citizens in the world and um, and, and once again, it seems to all go back to justification. It seems to all go back to being rooted in the gospel rather than in the narratives of the world, because like you said, whenever our, our identity or our, our need for justification becomes wrapped up in being right on whatever side of an issue, um, well then we, we, we've lost that grounding in our justification in Christ. And, uh, and, then, and then when we're justified in him being freed from the need to uh, to be proven or justified by the issues going on in our world, you yeah. Know, I think I think another thing that makes it unique is that, um, is that today, because of uh, just because of the world we live in, but like especially politics is one example. It seems so big. Mm-hmm. It seems so huge, and, and and nearly all the problems that we that we face in the political world are important. They're they're mm-hmm. real, but they they yep. seem so like. Uh, era defining, right. And like, and mm-hmm, all, but if you live in the kingdom and you are, and you see yourself primarily as a citizen of the kingdom and that, that you serve the God who sits on the throne. And as it says in Psalms two, he sits on the throne over all the Kings of the world and, and over all the kingdoms. He's sovereign over them all. He looks down upon them, you know? And so if, whenever you have a a far, far, far bigger vision of the reality that you're living in, in the kingdom, well, then it makes you realize, okay, these issues are real. I'm not going to deny them, but maybe they're not as big as what I'm being told by the world mm-hmm. around me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I think the more that you allow yourself to let the world around you define how big they are or how important they are in comparison to the kingdom of God, then then the more power you allow to have over your life.
1: Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. You know, it's uh, they are big. Uh, you know you know, my, my friends of color, this, this is big, this is, you know, centuries long, this is mm-hmm. systemic, big, like is in filtered through, you know, governing policies through, um, uh, documents when you buy a home, no, no person, uh, no non-white person should ever inhabit this premises, you know, in mm-hmm. deeds. I mean, it's, it's, It feels really big. Mm -hmm. And so I think I want to honor the greatness. But to your point, let's place that next to the infinite power and wisdom and love of God. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we have something bigger than this big thing that it can take its appropriate size next to him. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope that he is greater than that, right? And it also should give us ballast. This thing doesn't become so big that Jesus becomes this small,
2: mm.
1: right? And now yeah. this is the functional ruler of my life. That changes the way I treat people negatively. This, or at least half the people, this should change the way I treat all the people, mm. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a size thing. It's, it's just, man, can we get the very weighty important issues next to the infinite Christ? Mm-hmm. Not apart from him, not co-opting him, but next to him. You look at him, there's hope. There's also tenderness. There's also love and meekness. So
0: yeah, that's yeah, important. Yeah, that's really that's excellent. It, you worded so much better what I was trying to say. <laughs> no, well, no, you made a <laughs> but, great point. That, just... But and so that that's exactly what I was trying to say. I I love the way that you that you rephrased okay. it and made it much more clear and eloquent. Um because yeah, it, it just makes me as we've been talking and thinking about this and I'm processing it, um mm. it, it just makes me think of how yeah, I think so often if we if we lose perspective that kingdom perspective that um that it, it not only hinders our, our spiritual health and formation, but then also, you know, creates an obstacle to us living out the calling that God has for us. And, you know, one thing that that is, so that's what was on my mind with those comments before. And, um, you know, another thing I've been thinking about is I can't remember who I was reading this in, but it was talking about uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is also in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and this writer said, like I said, I can't remember who it was, so I don't want to make a mistake by guessing. <laughs> but the, uh, he he said that oftentimes our prayers, just in the beginning of the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, whenever we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So just that part, before we even get into the supplications, he said so often our prayers are answered already in that section, right mm-hmm. off the bat, before we even start asking for anything we can find that if we truly pray that part seriously our prayers are already answered because what what we'll find happening is that we had allowed our lives to become centered in in other things in the world whether that be Mm -hmm. other narratives or 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 a problem that i have in my life that i was allowing to dominate uh my inner sense of peace or my mind or whatever else and in that very beginning of the prayer whenever we're recentered in god his presence Mm -hmm. the reality of his infinite sovereignty and all the things you talked about his goodness love Mm -hmm. and 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 so on right there even though the problems don't necessarily go away Mm -hmm. uh, i I just think what you talked about then whenever they 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 almost become resized Mm -hmm. in comparison Mm -hmm. to him and whenever we enter into his presence and uh and yeah so he said so even in that moment oftentimes we find even if the problems don't go away they're almost pretty much answered for us
1: yeah no, I, I love that comment. Um, I, I pray that prayer every day, and uh, that's going to be a, a fresh little way of me relating to the Lord. <clears throat> I think, um, yeah, it, it's uh, they're, they're answered. Uh, I guess that my question is, how are they answered? As, it, as I think about it, they're answered eschatologically, that um, everything will honor God and everything will be just. You know, it says the kingdom of heaven will be a place in which righteousness dwells. So they're answered eschatologically. One day, everything will be just and true and good. Mm. But I think there's also a sense in which when I pray, you know, your kingdom come, you'll be done. All my concerns are answered, um, not just eschatologically, but they're, they're answered. Um, I can't think of the, a good word for it, but they're answered in the wisdom of God, mm. the timing of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's some of the things that we struggle with. Is like, you know, is got is Christianity so heavenly minded? It's no earthly good. You know, I want stuff done. You know, we need to make progress. We've screwed this up for years, and and I appreciate the prophets that are, are calling our attention to that. But sometimes what happens is the pro, the, the, the the modern prophets get um, they forget the wisdom and timing of God. Mm-hmm. So let's make progress, but let's not let's not take the place of God in the rate at which the progress is made. Hmm. you know so so that yeah yeah, his kingdom is going to come his will be done in his timing and in his way and ultimately and finally and man that is a fresh comfort to me this morning i so appreciate you bringing that that comment up that's awesome
0: yeah scripture is always challenging us in that way especially (laughs) like man as modern people i feel like one of the things that that god is constantly challenging us on and challenging me on is that what you said timing yeah um yeah, for some reason we we uh, we we live in a time and we've been in, in this environment where um, we've lost a sense of thinking in terms of generations to a certain mm-hmm. point, um, mm-hmm. and just assume that everything should happen right now, yeah. or, that, or that you know real change and whatnot happens only in the immediate, or it should always be in the immediate, but but forget you know of what God can do in, in generations, um, yeah, in decades and so on. But let's get back into your book. Uh, I mean, all, all this is related, but let, let's get back into yeah. uh, what you wrote about. And what you do as you go through this book is, um, since it's very focused in on the Beatitudes, you actually uh, use each individual Beatitude to uh, as a lens through which a way to you know uh, challenge uh, the assumptions that we live in in the modern day. Earlier, you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the first one being poor in spirit compared to uh, the big me and expressive individualism. What are some other ways? And may, you know, you, you don't need to give us the whole book because we want people to go and get it, of course. But what, what would be some of the? Uh, what would be some examples from some of the other beatitudes? Specifically, just give us some insight into how does one of these other beatitudes specifically address uh, our good crisis?
1: Um, I, the one that's coming to mind uh, is, "Blessed are the persecuted." Mm. um there is a lot of persecution today. A lot of people feel mis maligned, misunderstood. Um uh, the, the right feels persecuted, the left feels persecuted. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who persecute are persecuted um, for my name's sake. So the blessing, the um the flourishing that word can be translated, is for those who are persecuted in my name, for my name's sake for the sake of Christ, which is, means for the, the glory of Christ or for the, the purposes of Christ. Um, so, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And then he goes on. And it, this beatitude actually gets more airtime than any other beatitude because he goes on after that and he says, he says, um, blessed, are those, uh, blessed are you when men revile you and say all kinds of things falsely against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. Mm. Um, so there's a promise of reward. Then the, the, the little Beatitudes said, blessedly are persecuted, for there's just the kingdom of heaven. So you've got a great reward, the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot of reward on the line for people who are willing to be persecuted, not full stop, but persecuted for his name's sake. Um, and I love the the attention that Jesus gives to this to be a particular beatitude, because a lot of people today say, "Oh, we're not persecuted as Christians." You know, it's like um, I got an email from this you know missionary, and, and they're uh, imprisoned, you know, they're uh, for their faith in Burma, or you know, beheaded on the sands, sandy shores. You know, this this is this is um, this is not persecution, but Jesus. Jesus has three types of persecution that he kind of unfurls in that beatitude. There's the emotional, physical, and verbal. Verbal is the Mm. reviling, the reviling of people. Um, There is the sense in persecution itself that being a physical assaulting kind of thing. Uh, And then there's the, uh, bless you when people say all kinds of false against you. Um, So when people say things that are untrue about you, that's that's emotionally very difficult, you know so that there's a sense in which the persecution is physical absolutely, but there's emotional persecution and there's verbal persecution and while mm-hmm. we may not be physically assaulted today in America, there is certainly uh, more emotional and verbal persecution of Christians than ever before
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's it is for us
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know it, it's absolutely for our our friends who are in chains and who are suffering physically in the Middle East or the Far East, but it's also for us. And, uh, Christ is in touch with those forms of persecution because I was noticed recently in the gospel of Matthew that four times in the gospel of Matthew, it's that Jesus is described as being mocked. Um, I mean, there's, he, he experienced mockery, Hmm. um, uh, people people called him names. The son of God who could snap his finger and incinerate all those people and have done so justly suffers through insults and reviling and just thinking of these people that he made and that he longs. It's just heartbreaking, emotionally ravaging stuff that yeah. uh, the Lord went through. So anyway, I'm belaboring it. But the so the, the, this beatitude is for us. Yeah. And the, the challenge is to embrace it. Mm. You know, because we the, the way I looked at it was, blessed are the per- persecuted in the age of comfort. Because in a comfortable age, who wants to get persecuted? Nobody wants to suffer. Everyone in, in America questions the goodness of God as soon as they begin to suffer. But if you talk to uh, Ugandan pastors, Eastern Ugandan pastors, you know, that I was talking to them. They were going through famine. They were going through, obviously, poverty. There was a famine that hit. And he said, God is good all the time. I said, man, we struggle with suffering in in America. We you know, that rarely is said. He said, oh, we just we just know that's part of life, and that God is good in all of it. It's like, oh man, mm-hmm. we've got so much to learn from you. You know mm-hmm. why? Because we're creatures of comfort, because of the amenities of life. Mm-hmm. Because in America, you can walk out of your air conditioned cars step into your air-conditioned home, sit in your plush seat, have a cold beverage in an instant. I mean, everything is comfort. Yeah. Is it any surprise that suddenly uh, when suffering comes knocking, I don't want to align with Christ? I don't want to suffer for His name. I don't want to be reviled. And so this is the challenge, the secular beatitude of comfort. Blessed are the comfortable. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: Blessed are the air conditioned. You know, blessed are the, you know, the, the people with the big bank account. You know, that, that's that's how we live. Yeah. And um, that really runs against the profound reward of suffering with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I've had some tough stuff going on lately uh, where I feel misunderstood and hurt. And I've gone back to Colossians 3, where we're told that we are hidden with Christ in God. And as I've been thinking about that, I've been thinking, I don't have to demand uh, safety from my relationships because I have safety in Christ. I don't have to demand refuge and certain treatment from people. I don't have to demand being understood because I'm understood and known and hidden and safe in Christ. And, and, and that's how you get through adversity and embody this beatitude. I'm reaping the reward right now that I'm hidden in Christ. Yeah. I don't have to hide out in what you think of me. You know, I don't have to find refuge in being understood correctly. Um, I, I get to hide out in the Son of God who gave his life up for me. You know, I mean, the reward is breaking in now on this beatitude if I'm willing to suffer for Jesus' name, if I'm willing to challenge what people think with Jesus' teachings, you know, uh, and as I do it with the character and presence of Jesus, profound reward. You and I both know, anybody that listens to this, some of the most powerful times spiritually are the times in which we suffer. Because everything is peeled away, and all the obstacles to seeing the glory and sufficiency of Jesus are burned away and you just see the naked glory of Christ, the pure intimacy of Christ, the the, the proximity and love of Christ. And and, and it's in those moments that we are so taken with Jesus. Well, that's that reward. Blessed are the persecuted, right? But theirs is the the kingdom of heaven's breaking in on your soul as you are persecuted. The great reward, rejoicing exceedingly glad. Why? (laughs) Look at that reward. I mean, it's untouchable. It's in a vault in heaven that can't be broken. I mean, goodness gracious, you know? Yeah. That's street, that's street worthy stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love it. And I, I love, you know, it, it's good to remind people, uh, I think, because on the one hand, you see people who are a little too eager to claim persecution, but then you see kind of an overreaction to that, to people who say like, no, we're not persecuted at all. And, and so I, I appreciate how you pulled out how Jesus says in there. Uh, he points out three kinds, the, the physical, the very obvious that we see around the world, but then also the verbal and emotional, uh, which are also real forms of opposition and persecution as well. So that's really good. Yeah, um, yeah that's good. It, I got, I got so a, many other questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I just... Uh, it, I'm so validated in my sorrows by Jesus. You know, he's called the man of sorrows. You know, he chose those descriptions for a reason. He, if anybody understands persecution, it's the son of God. Yeah. Crowned with thorns, mocked, spat upon, crucified, tortured, you know. And uh, I was also in this season very touched by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pulls his closest friends to him. He says, I'm sorrowful the son of God.
2: I'm sorrowful. Mm -hmm. And then he says again, I'm sorrowful unto death. He validates our sadness in his
1: humanity. I mean, that's a, that's a King I want to follow.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Once going back to what we talked about earlier in, in the relevance of Jesus and his sermon, um, Is there any other God who, in all of world religions and philosophies that's ever existed, has there ever been another God who can claim that he knows what it's like to suffer? And that whenever he tells us, blessed are the persecuted, that he knows what it's like to be persecuted. Yeah. That he's been there uh, and he can identify with our sufferings. And like you said, that he knows what it's like to be sorrowful. And, And that right there, that's just one of the most beautiful and most persuasive reasons for following jesus yeah yeah
1: he he gets us 100 percent human and 100 percent divine he gets us and he does something about it
0: yeah <laughs> it's amazing like i said i got a lot of other questions but we are getting close to our uh close to the end of our time here so let me just uh leave off with this last one which is what do you hope readers take away whenever they read this book <sighs>
1: Um, I, I hope that they take away the the, the immediate relevance of the teachings and person of Jesus for our present struggles and questions and doubts. But not only that, I, I hope that they take away the presence of Christ. Not just how do I get through it? How do I answer the hard questions? You know, how do I cope? But 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 how do I live? Inside the Beatitudes with all the promises that are attached with the presence of Christ. The, you know, the righteous will be satisfied. The poor in spirit will have the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, the, the meek will inherit the earth. I mean, all of these profoundly rich promises, you know, satisfaction, mercy, like all of that comes to us in the person and presence of Christ his rule, his reign, his presence. So I hope that the readers are very equipped to respond to their challenges, but, but from a place of hiddenness in Jesus and a sense of his presence.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. I hope so too. And I'm confident that anyone who reads this book will, will definitely be equipped to be able to do that and and, and leave with that takeaway. So Jonathan, before we go, how can people find you, connect with you, learn more about uh, your, your other work?
1: Uh, I I'm, I have a, a Instagram account and a Twitter account, so you know at Jonathan underscore Dodson, um, and then uh, I, I write some articles here and there, and and I publish other books, um, uh, and then you know preach and teach at our our church. So
0: great, yeah. Well, I'll I'll yeah. have all that linked in the show notes for anyone who wants to be able to follow Jonathan. Of course, the book will be linked in the show notes, so you guys go and. Uh, and, and find his book through there uh, and then uh, his social and uh, website other books. I'll have all that linked down below. So if you guys want to uh, uh, read any more, look any more into uh, Jonathan's work, or just connect with him on social media, you'll be able to find that there. So, uh, well, Jonathan, like I said, this was, uh, we, we, we could have talked a lot longer and just kept going. <laughs> yeah. uh, so maybe we'll say that for another time, but I just really appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Thank you, Aaron. I enjoyed our conversation. Maybe we'll do it again.
0: Yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave American a rating or review. American American review. American to American catch the with from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the